what degree do these employees hate each other? How much of this is kind of the routines of ribbing each other? Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We're so thrilled to have you back again for another week. It's probably about the right episode over the course of the season to stop saying it's the beginning of season six at the beginning of every episode. So we won't say it, but you know it. If you're if you're a regular <laughs> weekly listener, you know, of course, and, right. uh, it's uh, it, it, it's a great episode today. We're doing another new playwright. This has been really a season of new playwrights, if nothing else. Uh, we'll we'll do some returning playwrights over the course of the season, as always. But it's been so fun to get the chance to talk about these different playwrights than the ones we have kind of done in chunks over the past couple of seasons. So that's been a real thrill. And today, like we said, new playwright again. Again, Mr. Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. Yeah, continuing to widen the library, both our physical library of scripts and the library of no scripts plays we've talked about. Today we're talking about Brandon Jacob Jenkins' play, Gloria, which I believe is the 2016 play. I have the context later on, so I will confirm that when it is time to do so. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but a couple years on, on the stage. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to get to talk about it. Yeah, so, so Gloria, as we'll discuss after the Patreon pitch and everything, is set in a magazine company, largely. And it, it's, it's a fascinating play, in part because Brandon Jacob Jenkins spent three years working for The New Yorker in his early career. Now, I've read several interviews with him on the play in preparation, and in virtually every time that comes up, he says, this is not a play about my time at The New Yorker. The events <laughs> in this play did not happen to me. Yeah, all, that yeah. I, all that my time at The New Yorker really provided was kind of an in-depth knowledge of the world of uh, publishing, writing, editing that his characters inhabit. And that, that, I think, will be important, as you'll see when we come to the synopsis of the play. Yeah, that's that's an important detail that, that is good for him to, to spread around a little bit, probably. And fascinating just because of the themes of the play. But we'll get to that when we get to it. First, we do want to ask, as we do every week, for you to consider becoming a patron of the show. We have some really wonderful patrons, and their financial support to No Script is what helps keep the podcast rolling. It is not free to run, and Jackson and I are not rich. Alas, I mean, wouldn't it be nice for just even like a day, like a Tevia day? Yeah, you know, if I could be just that, <laughs> if I were a rich man for one day, I would support no script. That's what I would do. <laughs> there you go. Nice, nice. Unfortunately, that's not our situation. And and so the podcast would not be able to live if it weren't for the financial support of our patrons. There are hosting fees. There are script buying fees. There's countless hours that we put in to producing a weekly dramatic literature podcast. If that's something you want to support, head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. Again, patreon.com slash no script podcast. There you can become a patron of the show. There's a couple different tiers. They all correspond 
correspond to different monthly amounts and they come with different reward levels and all that kind of stuff. The lowest one is just a dollar a month. So literally for $1 a month out of your pocket, $12 a year in total, it's hugely helpful even at that amount. So please, please consider it. And for those of you who are patrons, uh, we cannot say enough thank yous to you all. It's a privilege to get to do the show, and you all are a huge reason why we get to do it. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and we will now go back to the script. Back to the script. Here we go. So I will already correct myself from earlier. It is a 2015 play, but was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize in 2016. Yes, um, yes, yes. So, so that's 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 the dates of the play. As far as uh, Brandon Jacob Jenkins goes, um, he's new to the pl- to the podcast, so I'd like to just introduce him as a playwright here, real quick. He was born in D.C. Uh, he went to Princeton uh, and and New York University. And uh, actually uh, did his playwriting or engaged with playwriting program, that's hard to say sometimes, at Juilliard. Um, And is currently a faculty at University of Texas at Austin. Um, His his, uh, plays have won uh, a series of awards. He's uh, gotten the Vineyard's Paula Vogel Playwriting Award. Um, He has the uh, Critics Circle Award in 2017 for Most Promising Playwright. And then, of course, two Pulitzer Prize nominations. He was the final, not just nominations, but finalists in in two years. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, 2016 uh, for Gloria, the play we'll be talking about today, and uh, in 2018 as well for everybody. He's also a MacArthur Fellow, in, or was a MacArthur Fellow in 2016. Now, the play itself, as I said, was uh, first produced in 2015 at the Vineyard Theater, um, and uh, it had been developed by that same theater in in, in that year. And uh, that show ran for, uh, I'm looking at my notes here to, to, to find the, the final, uh, yeah, it ran uh, from May to July, so two months of, uh, of the show. Uh, it then uh, was produced notably by the Goodman Theater, and that ran from 2017 in January all the way through February of 2017, directed by Evan Cabanet. Um, and my, my understanding is that that production at the Goodman was a remounting of the Vineyard Theater off-Broadway production. You can watch some of the clips and interviews, and it's sort of fascinating to hear the cast and especially the director talk about the the differences in you know taking a play that was originally mounted off Broadway in New York to Chicago obviously New York and Chicago are fairly different cities theater wise pretty significantly different and yeah. so to watch them talk about the process of moving a play mounted in New York to then perform at the Goodman obviously the biggest theater in Chicago is really fat if that's something that you're interested in the kind of theater cultures of the cities listen to some of the interviews about the process of moving the play I think that'll be fascinating for you yeah, yeah, definitely, and then and then the play continued to move as well. It, it had a it had an international tour. It uh, was performed at London's Hampstead Theatre in 2017, as well as the Melbourne Theatre Company in Australia. So, and that was in 2018. So, r- very new play. Uh, you know, the the last kind of big official production uh, it was in 2018. So it's still still very in the in the the theatrical vernacular of 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 of, of companies around the world. Yeah, so we're going to move on to the synopsis now, and we want to give just two kind of pre-notices, warnings about what you're going to hear in the play um, and through our discussion. The first of them is that because of what you'll hear in the synopsis, in the initial runs of the show, critics were asked not to... Um, reveal all of the plot to hold back 
the kind of the the major event of the play. Now, we we thought about this a little bit, and we're not critics. What we do is talk about scripts and stories and structure. It's also been several years since the initial. Uh, productions of the play. The play has now been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. It's in the theatrical lexicon. So we feel pretty comfortable talking about the entirety of the script. But we do want to just say that because some of the script is the surprise of the major event about halfway through, if this is a play that you are going to see, or I know that there was recently a a remounting of a reading produced, if you're going to watch that, uh, if this is a play you want to engage with as a first-time viewer, this is not the episode for you to listen with. We don't do uh you know no spoilers on this show we we spoil things because we're talking about script structure stories how playwrights create them what's fascinating about the shows that they've created and we can't have that discussion about this play without talking about what occurs so just a forewarning if this is a show you're going to see or engage with you want to have that incredible surprise no hard feelings at all just turn this episode off come back to it later when you know what happens in the show um and and you'll you'll have a better experience with the play if that's if the play is something you're going to engage with soon if you do that right right the second little it's not even little actually it's it's a full-on content warning and now i'm about to spoil it so all of you who are trying not to get spoiled you better hit pause and (laughs) get out of this episode quickly because this is Halfway through the play, there is a major violent act. I'll describe it more in more detail as we do the synopsis, but I want to give anybody who wants to hop off as we do this content warning a chance to do it now. A major violent act occurs. Um, there is death on stage. There is suicide on stage. And it occupies much of what happens after that in the play or the the thinking and talking about it. So those things occur in the play. We're going to have to have open, frank conversations about what happened and why and how it affects the characters. If that's not something you really want to engage with as a listener or as a theater goer or anything, this is not the episode for you. we got lots of great episodes that don't have that in it. So go check one of those out. But this is your chance to hop off now if that content is going to um, be particularly you know, negative for you. So just, just hop yeah. off now. Yeah, take care of yourself well uh, and and check out one of the other episodes if that doesn't sound like the good good jam for you today or, or good content for you to be absorbing. But uh, if you're still with us at this point, we're going to kind of jump into the synopsis of, of the script. All right, here we go. So the play Gloria is about a magazine company around the early 2010s, middle 2010s, somewhere in that decade. Um, the first group of people we meet are all employees at the magazine company, Dean, Kendra, and Annie or Ani are empl- they are assistants to editors at the magazine company. These three particularly work in the culture department, we learn. And we learn that they, along with seemingly everybody else in this office, hate their jobs. And they hate each other. Uh, they're, they're, much of the first act of this play is them saying nasty things and doing nasty things to each other. Um, and, and part of it is their different ambitions kind of coming into conflict with each other, their different personalities. We also meet Miles, a sort of bubbly uh, personality, kind of happy young intern. And we meet Lauren, who works in fact-checking and who really hates his job, even more than the other three. I think the initial stage direction describes him as like a sad, 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 yeah. sad guy. Um, yeah. The other character we meet is the title character, Gloria, who is 
kind of odd, off-putting. People don't really like her. And the given circumstances of the play are that the previous night, Dean attended Gloria's housewarming party. Gloria invited the whole office. And uh, my understanding is that only Dean and maybe one or two others from different departments actually showed up to the housewarming party. And now the play, which takes place the next morning, everybody kind of discusses, well, of course we didn't go. We don't like Gloria. She's too weird. She's uh, emotionally, she captures you emotionally and, and like holds you hostage is some of the descriptions of her. Kind of an odd personality. Gloria shows up a couple times throughout the arguments of the first act and asks where Dean is, asks where everybody else is. It goes on like that until this major violent event, which is at the end of Act 1, Gloria you first you hear screaming and gunshots and then Gloria comes on stage and shoots Miles to death, shoots Ani to death, uh, chooses to let Dean live because he attended her party and has been nice to her and then shoots herself on stage. And that that is the end of Act 1, which is about half the play. The second half of the play is eight months later, and then a few months later after that, there's two scenes. And it is about Dean and Kendra, who was out of the office at the time of the shooting, and so she also survived initially. And they are discussing, each of them is writing a book about the events of what happened in the office. And they have differing views about that authorship, about the ownership of the story, about the way the story should be told, about how it's impacted their own lives. Eventually they meet Nan, who is a character I've not described because she's an offstage character in Act 1. She was Dean's boss at the magazine company. Again, totally offstage character. We meet her now in Act 2, and she has left the office because she's pregnant, going to start a family, and she has a pretty impactful experience hiding in her office during the shooting as well and is going to turn that into a book as well. Then the the final scene of the play is a couple months after that. We are out in Los Angeles at a film office where Lauren, who we haven't seen since he uh, told everybody to keep it down in Act 1, Lauren is a temp at this film agency and Nan shows up and is going to, or Nan, I suppose, because it's short for Nancy. Uh, Nan shows up because her book is being optioned for a film. And they, they discuss a little bit about that and, and about what happened. And so th- that's, that's the sweep of the synopsis of the play. Obviously, the, the major impactful wild event is an onstage office shooting, which is not, not uh, hidden. Uh, Miles is shot in the back and it's described as bloody. Annie or Annie is shot in the face and it's described as bloody. And Gloria kills herself on stage right in front of June. So there's uh, Dean. So there's nothing hidden. There's not. I mean, this the the brutality of the act is part of the experience of the end of Act One. Right, and 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 we might as well talk about it right up front. Um, the I mean, the, the subsequent scenes are really interesting as far as the themes for ambition goes. But I think to get there, we really need to talk about this first scene. Um, the 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 moment when that happens is such. I mean, it's it's obviously a shocking, violent act. Um, and, and any any sort of shocking, violent act on stage has that sort of weight. A, a lot of times, theater uses the offstage violence format to to uh, do the violent acts in. So having it on stage is shocking. But it's also shocking because the way the play has gone so far, right? The whole first act is this, uh, it's a cubicle drama, right? The, the characters are sitting in their cubicles at work in an open office format. None of them are office um, level workers. I mean, they work in an office. They don't have their own office. Um, so they're all sharing space and basically kind of... 
um, uh, hating each other. <laughs> and that's and, kind of the question, though, isn't it? Because I described it the same way in my synopsis. And the question is sort of, of the first act, at least before Gloria's violence, is like, what degree do these employees hate each other? How much of this is kind of the routines of ribbing each other in the office? I mean, all of my experience working in an office, I'm, I'm a guy that likes to tease my coworkers. We have fun. And when I meet coworkers that, you know, I feel comfortable teasing me back, it it can sometimes sound a little harsh, certainly, but it, it comes from a place of love and friendliness. And, and so what, in, in, in a play like this, especially one where there's no elaborate stage directions describing the internal machinations of the characters you you do have to do some work to figure out what what in this office scene is in intended to be mean intended as uh, aggression intended to hurt and what is intended to be humorous to be funny and what things that are funny are really subtle jabs at the other characters well, and, and then after this scene, you think back on this scene and wonder what about this culture has led Gloria to this act? Um, and, and, and the kind of messy questions around that, right? And especially, especially the questions of, I think the meanness level, at least in person, like for instance, Dean and Kendra have a high meanness level towards each other. Like they, they, they just criticize each other, tease each other mercilessly about each other's work, about each other's hopes. Um, but the real revealing bit comes when characters are off stage, I feel like, and other characters have conversations about them. Um, this happens to Gloria a lot because Gloria is off stage a lot and the characters talk about her behind her back a lot. It happens to Kendra a lot because Kendra has a, a habit of working not in the office <laughs> or maybe maybe not working <laughs> not in the office. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the criticism that Dean levels at Kendra a number of times in Act 1 is that she's basically never there. She rolls in late at the beginning of the act after having gone shopping, it is clear, and gone to Starbucks. Dean says, you're going to basically stand around and talk for a couple hours and then do another Starbucks run. So you're not really doing any work at all, Kendra. And and that really kind of gets at what is the core tension, the core story, it appears, of the play before we know, of course, what actually happens, which is it, it seems to be a play of Dean v. Kendra. Their conflict, their tension is what drives the action of the play in Act 1. And in some ways, they're very similar characters. Kendra has um, a series of things that she says about Dean, about how he's about to turn 30. He's still an assistant. He's like the oldest assistant-level employee in the building. His career is going nowhere. And Ani, or Annie, kind of immediately turns around and says, Kendra, aren't you 27? How? What, what's your plan here? And Kendra kind of fumbles a response. Well, I got something going on with Twitter and writing, and I, I kind of I, I have I have a plan. Okay, <laughs> there's a plan. But it seems clear that 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 uh, that the th- fact that Annie points that out is uh, needles Kendra. That maybe she and Dean in, in their it's seeming like there's going to be no progress in their career is it hits closer to home than Kendra would have wanted. She has a lovely long monologue about how, you know, you come out of college and you you just start at the job that you think will be fun and you wake up one day and it's your career and you're stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- that is like a huge part of the play is what is, is kind of dreams unrealized or dreams deferred to borrow from other, other plays um, and, and poetry. But like what, what happens when uh, you're stuck? In, in jobs that, that are not 
not what you dream they would be. How do you, uh, you know, negotiate the happiness level, the the uh, camaraderie level around something that you don't want to be doing that you're you're kind of stuck in because it feels like you need to be stuck in. Um, and 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 how do you figure out figure out how to negotiate those like work friendships or or work <laughs> adversarial relationships? Well, and especially the stuckness as it relates to people in their twenties. Brandon Jacob Jenkins in an interview is is fairly explicit about that. That one of the things he was interested in when he was writing the play was I think the quote is something like, "How disposable are your twenties? We, we live in an economy, or at least before COVID, we did, where you know." jobs are especially high paying jobs in your career of interest are rarer than I think our society would want them to be I think we could all agree on that at the very least and so you get a job that seems to fit something that'll be interesting and, and engaging for you out of college and how disposable is that time are you are you now trapped in that career is it possible to restart is it possible to make major shifts most of the characters in the play are looking for some kind of major shift in their life that is going to make what has happened to them at the magazine company up to this point feel slightly irrelevant or feel like a, a stepping stone along the way to what they actually want to do. But in Act 1, they are where they are. They're here, and it does not appear for any of them that there's an immediate escape, except for Miles, the intern, who is going to, you know, the next day is like his last day. So he does have an escape. Right, right. And I think that's an that's an important aspect to keep in mind to kind of make sense of the latter part of the play. All these characters are are are, are starved for their moment. They they've they've seen other people around them get their moment. In fact, in the action of the play, there's there's uh, some interesting uh, storytelling around an artist dying, a music artist dying, who uh, both Kendra and Ani have a lot of identification with from their childhood. The artist dies, and uh, someone else in the building happens to have already written kind of a fluff piece for a blog about that artist. So that that editor or that that copywriter um, gets to write the piece. That day, so uh, like in in the building, despite the fact that both Kendra and Ani feel like they have some ownership over this artist, that they love this artist, they read this other character's or this other this other employee's article, and they're they're at least Kendra is somewhat enraged that this opportunity just happened to come to her. All these characters have these like small stories of how the lucky moment came to other people. And they're they're just waiting. They're like stuck there waiting for this lucky moment or this this right executive to kind of hear them or take them under their wing. And it hasn't happened to them yet. Well, yeah, you're right to point out there's this feeling that the lucky moment happened to someone else. And I apologize. I forget which of the three uh, cubicle employees from Act One says this, but one of them describes how the only reason they're not, you know, publishing pieces for the magazine right now is that they ended up as assistants to the wrong editor. That yeah. so many of their assistant co-workers in different departments get to write things or get to act as editors, full editors for pieces, just because of who they ended up working for. And of course, they were the unlucky ones and ended up in this department or working for this specific person or whatever. You, you mentioned the death of the music artist, which is, I think, a crucial point in Act 1. And it's one of those points that ties Act 1 to Act 2 in a thematic, kind of specific way. Lauren, the very, very sad, 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 sad fact-checker character, comes in talking about uh, the fact that they've got to turn around this piece really quickly. And he has a long monologue in which he makes 
kind of a, a highlighting point, a pinnacle point for the theme of the play, which is about why they feel the need to make the music artist, her name's Sarah Tweed, I believe, um, all that important now that she has died. Now that the music artist died, it, it had just happened that morning or the day before, the magazine's going to run this article, and Lauren says, why in the world are we doing that? Who is that for? She's dead. Why are we running? Why are we writing an article about her life? We're going to turn her whole life into like an 800-word article? What the heck is up with that? We're not making her any money. She's dead. We're selling her albums for somebody else to make money. He sort of works around in his brain and with the other people in the office space the question of once you have passed your life story becomes something valuable and commercializable i'm not sure that i used that word correctly yeah yeah especially in contrast to a life lived in somewhat obscurity before um like this is the 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 artist had seen the, uh, Sarah Tweed I think you said that the artist's name was had seen her her kind of heyday years ago you know you get the sense that when Ani and Kendra were teenagers they were listening to the music so you know like 8 years ago or whatever she hadn't been in the spotlight recently she'd faded from the public attention and now that she's dead they're giving her attention um and and so so that that aspect of uh, uh, a life that is in obscurity that could have used some attention that could have benefited from the attention of say an article about her music now does not receive that attention um uh, and uh or or did not receive that attention and now receives the attention after the fact after the fact or after the time when they could have used it Right, and that ties really specifically to several of the things which take up the rest of the play. Of course, the first of them being Gloria as an employee and the, and the terrible, terrible thing that she does. And th that idea that you know she is going to be in the news now, her story, her life story that nobody in the office knew. Really, nobody right. in the office knew anything about her. She had she lived in obscurity, partially because her personality was grating on her coworkers. She had never gotten a promotion, so she had just sort of lived in the obscurity of her job. At one point, Nan, one of the boss editor level folks, later in the play says she had never even really met Gloria. She kind of knew she was around. But Gloria had been around for a long time. I think they said... 15 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you get a character like Gloria, who because of this terrible, horrible thing that she does in the middle of the play, occupies media attention, people attention, uh, household name kind of attention. Both Dean and Kendra end up naming their books, or at least their manuscripts, Gloria, the name of the play, Gloria. I mean, she is that kind of the next level up from the Sarah Tweed example in the first act in that she's a character we meet and her death is not just a death, but also a kind of horrifying, violent incident for the office. And the same thing occurs as Kendra and Dean write their stories and Nan write their stories about other employees in the office. Miles becomes kind of the highlighting example for that, an intern that nobody was all that interested in in the first right. act. He's around. They give him menial tasks to do. Nobody even knows that it's his second to last day until he tells them. And yet Kendra is writing this lovely chapter in her book about the victims devoted to him and his family. So again, we see that kind of that through line of people's value in their ability to be commercialized increases when their death is something noteworthy. Right to the point that Lauren, uh, by by the end scene, is is hearing what I think it's Nan's book, 
um, that that one of the characters is reading and he's hearing these stories of people. He's like, they weren't like that at all. Like I, I met them, I knew them. They 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 they, they didn't. Rep- the the story gets so uh, blown out of proportion or or used by the different uh, authors and characters for their own purposes. Lauren is such an an interesting character who carries so much weight underneath this play. <laughs> it's fascinating um, to me how this play is structured, especially yeah. in relationship to the character of Lauren, who's a minor character really at best in Act right. 1. He has kind of a lengthy monologue at one point, but other than that, he comes in and basically tells everybody to keep quiet in a couple of short exchanges. And then we don't see him again until the final scene of the play. He's right. like the driving character of the final scene of the play. Right, absolutely. He's he's uh, yeah. He comes in most of the the at least the plot advancement happens through him in the third scene. That that first scene too. He gives us one of the more subtle um, informational things in the play. Um, he he has that beautiful monologue where he kind of talks about his world and, and why he's he's feeling so sad about the the death of this artist. But he also gives the crucial information that everything the characters say in this office can be heard throughout the office. He comes in multiple times and and says, "Can you please keep it down? We're trying to work. We're trying to turn this thing around in in a, in 24 hours." And these characters don't. It, first of all, they don't they don't respect that really at all. Um, he has to come in multiple times to tell him that. But these characters have gotten done talking about really personal things about other people. They've gotten done talking about Gloria behind her back. They've gotten done talking about Kendra behind her back. Gotten done talking about Dean behind his back at one point. Miles behind his back. And you get you at least I suddenly had the realization through Lauren that Gloria has heard probably most of what they've said about her behind her back. Yeah, I think you're right to point that out because it, it becomes sort of a a subtle kind of metaphor for office politics, like workplace politics, the way that things spread, these sort of subtle rumors that push themselves all throughout an office. What Lauren describes is that in the sort of interior office that Dean and Ani and Kendra share their cubicles and Miles, the intern, share all their cubicles in, that the sound can sort of carry down the hall is how he describes it. And apparently loud enough that he could hear it over, I think he says his $60 headphones or something. Noise-canceling Noise-canceling headphones. Noise headphones. Yeah. So it, it's a little bit unrealistic, but I think that's the point, is this idea that the the thing the the backstabbing the meanness the the grating tension that exists in these cubicles spreads in this uncontrollable way and you can sort of imagine that if that's the circumstance why the culture of a magazine company like this would be so bad and and the fact that it, it is a negative culture it's a oppressive culture it is a soul sucking culture at this magazine company is is agreed upon by everybody there are no detractors from that point of view right right no they 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 all pretty much agree that it's terrible and yet there are some people who get not only the terribleness but also the terribleness of their like a more concentrated dose from their co-workers or the way that the the like there's I think it's a line that Kendra says where she she says she's got it like after last night, she's got to know where her social standing is. After the failure of her housewarming party, she has to know what the office thinks of her. And uh, and uh, and and yeah, that's 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 the kind of world that that is being lived into uh, by Gloria, but also by these other characters and then self-perpetuating that that kind of pain across across the office space. 
And so that is, that's the world that we begin to occupy in Act One is this really gut-punching, it seems to be sort of brutal in both what the job expects of these employees and also the way that they treat each other. It's a negative place to work, and Miles the intern is getting out as quick as he can. And that's the world that we live in. And then we have the terrible, horrible onstage visual kind of culmination of that negative kind of environment. And then we live in two totally other places for the rest of the play. I mean, the the next two scenes, which occupy Act 2, are a Starbucks and a a film office in L.A. I mean, we're not we're in the same city in the first scene of Act 2 and totally different city in in the second scene. So we we escape out of the building that is the magazine company. But I think some of what we discover is that those relationships have still carried that animosity with them. Yeah, definitely. And some of that has helped in just the uh, concept of the play. Um, the, the, the idea that we've escaped, but not really, um, from, from that first scene in that the play calls for doubling of characters and not just doubling of characters, but the, but the stage directions call for, uh, not necessarily obfuscating the fact. Um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and try to pull up one of these stage directions because in act two, we meet the, um, the character who played or the actor who played Miles, who is uh, playing now the barista at the Starbucks. His name is Sean. Um, and the, the stage direction for him at the top of it is a Starbucks employee. Sean, who looks a lot like Miles, stands behind the counter, sort of staring at Dean. Dean catches him staring, but goes back to work. And eventually Sean just goes for it and asks him if he's seen him somewhere before. Um so, so, so there, there is this like echo, echo, uh, even put into the 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 uh, stagecraft of doubling the actors for the characters. Yeah, that continues on. I'll just provide another example so that you get the feeling for how basically the rest of the stage directions, which introduce new characters, all follow this format. So we in into the Starbucks where the Sean, the barista who looks a lot like Miles, is working, walks Nan. Now, Nan was a character in Act 1, but she was an offstage character, so we didn't meet her. We didn't ever see her. So now we're going to see her. So this is a stage direction for her entrance and a friend of hers named Sasha. Nan, who looks a lot like Gloria, walks in with Sasha an editor at a nearby publishing house and former assistant who looks a lot like Ani. So two characters, they're double cast, obviously, as you've said. And I have to admit that I'm not sure exactly what to do with those stage directions. Occasionally on this podcast, we end up talking about that, that unless the play calls for it, the audience doesn't see the written text of the stage directions. So those stage directions are either for the reader or for the production team or both. And, you know, I'm a director and you start to wonder, well, what? What is what is the intention of Brandon Jacobs Jenkins in pointing that out? Because the fact that he points it out seems to indicate that it it's more important than just the fact of the doubling to reduced cast size. You know, you want right. to have a six or seven size cast instead of a 14 or 15 as many characters as there are. So it seems to indicate that there's a higher level of importance. But how does that end up being communicated in production? Should the audience go... If they would recognize the actor, I would think almost certainly, but are they are they supposed to make that connection? I'm I'm not quite sure. 
Yeah, no, it, it is a it is an interesting thing because you know you you wonder if if there isn't going to be some sort of payoff. You know, is is the play served more by just casting a, a a different actor in the role? Is it a necessity of a small house or a thought towards productions? But I think that there is there is something kind of deeper hanging out underneath it, and at least at least for me, some of the stuff that I inferred uh, has to do with the last scene and the difference that Lauren. So, so Lauren in the last scene has trouble with his computer because he is a temp, and uh, the actor who played Dean comes on as the IT guy who is now Devin. Devin comes on and feels kind of uh, unappreciated in his work. No one told him that there was going to be a temp here, so he came to try to help him with his login, just his password, and he found out that he's a temp, and so he has to go get a different sheet and, and give him an orientation because no one else is going to do the orientation for him. And Lauren kind of breaks the cycle of, of this kind of surface-level interaction of everyone and asks uh, Devin, who is played by the actor who played Dean, um, out, out for a beer later. He, want, he wants to try to, to just to kind of get to know him, have a beer, and say hi. Um, and I think that is a little bit of, of what this doubling is doing. And, and the doubling across three different workspaces where you see similar-looking people, where, and, and in the context of a character like Nan, who over and over forgets people that she's worked with. Um, she ignores Dean's emails, we find out in scene two. And uh, she she sees Lauren at, in scene three and is like, D who did we work together? Oh, yes, you were someone. And she can't in... remember Miles' name. I mean, there's it's this really yeah. it almost, it makes me really uncomfortable to read this. It's the scene at the end of act one, or act two, scene one, as Nan has met D Dean and Kendra in the coffee shop. Now Nan's sitting with her friend Sasha. They're talking about Nan's experience. Uh, and I should say Nan. I apologize. I'm, I'm bad at pronunciation, as always, <laughs> listeners. But Nan, she knows. Uh, she, she's talking about her experience of the shooting and all of that. And she's talking about this awesome conversation, how great it was to have this extended conversation with the intern and how he kind of changed her perspective on where she was. And some of what he said helped her later on realize she was pregnant. But the whole time she's calling him Mark. Right. Oh, <laughs> the wrong name. <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 absolutely painful. <laughs> um and and that and I think that that aspect, the like the you could be if you if you show up to work, you put your headphones in, you just like stay focused. There will be a rotating cast of people who looks roughly the same to you. Um, that, 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 you know, come through, you don't know anything about their lives. You don't really know who they are or what they represent or what they're carrying with them. But the, the change of Lauren at the end to, to ask the question, to engage, um, with this person who is being played by someone who played one of the other uh, characters earlier, I think, I think kind of breaks that cycle. It shows him investing in his coworker, in this person who is not invested in by the, uh, the, the system itself, who feels uh, underrepresented or angry at the system. So I think that's, that's part, of the, part of the meaning that I got from the doubling, at least. Well, I was fascinated when we were started talking about this, you used the phrase an echo, that there's sort of the visual connections and they really are very visual right in both of the stage directions that we read the phrasing is who looks a lot like blank so there's this visual connection with 
people that they've known before. So you have that part of it. And then early in Kendra and Dean's conversation at the beginning of Act 2, they talk about how there are all these things around them that remind them of the terrible thing that happened. Now, they don't use the word echo, but I think that could have been written into the script and it would have fit right in. There, there, there are these things which come up and just remind you, cause them that pain. For Kendra, she's a person that loves Starbucks in Act 1 to the point of going twice a day or something like that. Yeah. And and when we meet her again in Act 2, eight months later, the the pain of the shooting and, and the experience for her has caused her to not be able to drink Starbucks anymore. And, and so... She says, you know, if I drink it, I just had it comes up in me. I have this memory. It reminds me. It's like an echo. That's my word, not Brandon Jacob Jenkins. But yeah, I think that that might be part of it, too. This idea that the things that have happened in our lives, especially memorable, traumatic things, come up again. We see echoes of them all around us. That person looks a little bit like the person that I saw shot to death in this office if I were Dean. You know, you, could, you can kind of see those echoes throughout, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It kind of speaks to the, you know, the the the, the PTSD of of those moments, the the ways that that it, that it shows back up in your life, that it still affects your life throughout and and the the ways that you know you can kind of it it it, it a, a huge impactful experience especially one like what Dean went through Dean surviving the attack and uh, just just by the 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 mercy i guess of gloria um and 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 the 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 ways that that crops back up in your life and and how it plays when you uh when you still stay in the river right when you when you're writing about the thing right all three of these characters continue to write about that trauma and and how how it affects you and how it continues to ripple out through your life and in the people that you meet so we we need to probably shift our conversation to talk about some of kind of the major commentary or um theme i guess you could call it i'm not sure it's quite a theme but some of what the play brings up which is around the ownership and commercialization of lives we've kind of shown as we've talked through the different elements of the play how that crops up in the different characters lives and it it becomes kind of the primary conflict of act two uh beside you know how are these people going to recover from this thing that happened how are they going to be changed as a result of it there becomes this question of who owns the tragedy that occurred who can tell the story of the tragedy that occurred who can make money and have a livelihood uh based on the tragedy that occurred yeah no and i think you're right to kind of separate those two at the end you know who who owns it and who can make money at it because there there is that aspect the 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 conflict between dean and kendra seems to be along the lines of who owns it um dean and kendra have dean dean was in the building uh when when it happened dean was in the room when it happened um kendra was uh, away was out of there um and 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 yet she's writing this this memoir about it they they meet to 
Dean brings this uh, non-disclosure agreement with him from his publishing house because uh, he, they want to be sure that whatever they write about each other, the other has the ability to veto or or not allow it to be there. And so the the and the, I just uh, want to point out that that's a, a lovely moment of revelation because up until then you, you sort of live in this world probably more like you're looking at the scene through Kendra's eyes or something where you say they just met to catch up after all this time they're meeting to discuss their writing projects how they're recovering from it they haven't seen each other in so long they're finally going to reconnect and when Dean brings out the NDA there's just this lovely little revelation of the intention of this meeting right yeah yeah you kind of get the rug ripped out from under you you're, you're kind of you know the, the the connection isn't necessarily the uh the goal of this meeting in fact it's a disconnection <laughs> a, a a way for them to to uh or a way for dean especially to increase his ownership of the moment because we've learned that he has like a friend at the publishing house where kendra is has has you know, sent her samples and has gotten a, an offer and a contract and such to publish her book. And he, it's sort of, it's a great playwriting of just kind of slowly revealing, well, I actually have read some of the book samples that you sent in. I've read, or no, he's first, I've read the proposal. Well, actually, I've read some sample chapters of your book. <laughs> well, actually, I have this non-disclosure agreement that you need to sign so that you're, what you're writing about me doesn't ruin my book about the experience. And what I write about you doesn't doesn't ruin your book about the experience. And this is the exchange that ends up occurring just after the NDA comes out. Kendra says, are you insane? You are not going to tell me what I can and can't write. This short beat. She says, you don't like own this experience, Dean, you're aware of that. Dean, with all due respect, Kendra, don't I? At least a little more than you. You weren't there. You were at Starbucks. Nothing happened to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in that line, the this metaphysical, uh, ether, above-our-head concepts of who owns the pain and the tragedy of the story, I mean, it, it's really starkly laid out by Dean. She says, you don't own this experience. And he says, with all due respect, don't I? Right. I mean, that is crystallizing the conflict into a, something negotiable in the moment. Right, right. He has that kind of that 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 slow reveal with with the with the NDA as you described culminating in that moment. You also have Kendra's slow reveal of like, no, I'm not going to write about you. No, no, of course I'll be careful about it. Of course I'm going to write about you, Dean. <laughs> like yeah. that's that's her journey too. <laughs> like as soon as as soon as the NDA comes out, she's like, I can't sign this. Of course I'm going to write about you. Um, and and yeah, it's 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 a great moment of two people pursuing. <sighs> And, and this is this is where I think this is where the discussion gets interesting. This is where like you know post drinks after the show you could have a, a long night of conversation around this around how altruistic either of these two are being, right? Like to what degree uh, is you know um, Dean processing or providing an honest account of his tragedy? Uh, to what degree is Kendra respecting the stories of the people who died in this tragedy? Versus to what degree are each of these characters pursuing that lucky moment? that we talked about in Act 1. Well, Pursuing... I'll even put it more starkly than you profiting off of the terrible thing that occurred. I mean, yeah. that is 
the central tension of the second half of the play just thematically, you know, in, in, in what you're going to take away as a human, at least, not necessarily plot, but it, this sort of tension of to what degree are these people, both Dean and Kendra, who we discussed, and Nan, just trying to write a story that helps them grieve and cope and do, use altruistic and making money off commercializing the story. And you see that that theme we had already mentioned has come up in Lauren's long monologue about Sarah Tweed and now comes up again in, a, in an even more high-stakes situation, right? In Act 1, Sarah Tweed is a made-up artist. Nobody, nobody cares about Sarah Tweed. It's brought <laughs> up to introduce this, the idea that is then going to have major stakes attached to it when we return to the idea in Act 2. Yeah, yeah, because and and we and we discover then in Act Three that neither neither of these characters really got to you know pre- figure out their dream as a result of it. We hear about both of their books, and we hear that the public didn't receive them well. That they that they weren't that well, they weren't. Dean's didn't even get made. He, Dean's, like, he, yeah, that's he, right. He, and he actually tells us that that is what he suspects is going to happen. He's clearly. Dean is clearly struggling. I mean, he, yeah. he has a panic attack on stage in that act. He 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 slaps Kendra at one point. I mean, he is really lost as a as a result of and Kendra says it really nicely. And she's not a very likable character, so I, I don't like that she puts it so well because <laughs> I I don't want to identify with her, but she does say it really explicitly, which is like she she describes how Gloria basically stole Dean's life from him, even though she let him live, because everything that happens to Dean after that is going to be in context of what Gloria did in the office. And that that is definitely the Dean that we meet. Yeah, we get the information that he was, you know, on on a lot of talk shows, that he was constantly interviewed about it. We even get the inferring that Sean, the bartender's recognition of him at the beginning is not necessarily meant to just be an echo, as we've talked about. But in fact, Sean has seen the interviews or interacted with this story before. Um, so so we know that that Dean's life has been dominated by this moment and he's he's tr- he's 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 really stuck in it. We've talked about stuck before. Um and what do you th- th- so it's no surprise that Dean's book doesn't get written, I don't think. It's a little bit of a sad moment when we finally hear that in the final scene of the play, that he never did write it. And then you described that Kendra's book was received badly by the public because, of course, she wasn't even there. She was like, I think they right. even say, like, she was at Starbucks, wasn't she? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so then what do, you, what do you make of the fact that it's Nan's book that is written? That it's Nan's book that is both written or not both, that is written, received well, and then optioned for a film about it. Yeah, it's kind of a representative moment for the structure of the play because it's Nan's book that is the one that gets optioned for a movie that has had some success, a character like finished reading it on stage and is crying in the final scene of the play. And it's also, it works the same that the final scene of the play is Nan and Lauren's scene. We mentioned that a little bit earlier. For how much Nan and Lauren are in the play before that final scene, at the end of the play, for the audience experience, it is they who are left on stage and a bunch of other characters that we're meeting for the first time. They are the ones who have held over from Act 1. I mean, it's a fascinating structure for the story that Nan's book is the one that succeeds in the, you know, to the probably to the deficit of, of Dean's book ever getting written and, and, and Kendra's book. And then it, it, it is represented or 
it is uh, mirrored in the plot of the play, the structure of the play as a whole, that we follow Dean and Kendra so closely through Act 1, through the first scene of Act 2, and then we never meet them again. The right. final scene of the play belongs to two minor characters, sort of. Yeah, one character that's not even seen in the first scene, just heard. Um, yeah, she's an offstage character in Act One. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's right on. I think that this that some of it some of it is uh, also the the kind of almost you know third level or fourth level thing that this play is saying, and that is the the kind of plight of the. Uh, of 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 you know twenties workers right we're back we're back to that theme of people in their twenties working for a dream or working for a goal and uh, even even in this situation where they get something to write about where they realize some of their dream it's not they who end up succeeding it's the editor level it's the person who who is who is from before the kind of doomedness to, to, to be you know not very lighthearted about it the kind of doomedness of these these young characters trying for a dream and even when they go through an awful situation and and when they go through the awful situation they try to option that for some sort of success it's not it's not uh, it doesn't turn out for them well, and the play provides a painful, terrible detail that is very pointed to that exact conflict, that exact theme, which is that we learn that the editor level employees in the office were forewarned about the shooting. Someone had yeah. seen Gloria with a gun and the management had sent around an email to editors, which basically says, lock your offices because your glass is bulletproof. And so Nan, who we offstage character, obviously there's some symbolicness in that. She's behind these frosted glass panes, the whole act, all of that. But she tells Miles to close the door. She's constantly telling people to close her door, which surprises Dean a little bit. And we only learn late in the play that the reason for that was that she, she'd been told that there might be a shooting. Yeah. I mean, it, it really lends itself to that exact theme that you're describing, this sort of the, 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 these editor-level folks, these management-level folks have this set up for success, uh, you know, that, that that the folks that work in cubicles were just left at risk. Yeah, left at risk. Yeah, the, and you get that through a lot. There's a lot of work done in the first scene around Kendra's monologues around that and Dean's monologues around that. And, and you get the, like, the physical version of it, right? Like, Kendra and Dean feel like their work, their words are being optioned and stolen by uh, the editorial staff and those above them. And and that's true <laughs> in the end. Uh, like, the, the uh, Nan, Nan writes the book about the experience, the experience that Dean had, the experience that Kendra feels ownership over. Um, but you also get it in that, that kind of stunning realization that also their, you know, their bodies are undervalued as well. Their physical, their, their physical existence is undervalued as well in this, in this work environment. Yeah, that's a great, great way to put it, that there's sort of two levels where those employees are disadvantaged. And and the play just does so much. It's both the commentary on tragedy yeah. and on <laughs> workforce politics and on 
uh, storytelling some. I mean, it, when I when I mentioned that Brandon Jacob Jenkins, you know, worked at an office that worked for the New Yorker in a, in a not that the events of the play happened to him, but that kind of the world of the play was something that comes from his life experience. It's fascinating to think about that alongside the play's commentary about you know, being able to sort of steal people's life stories for your own writing. I mean, it's just it, there's a fascinating world there. There's a fascinating world where he titles the play Gloria and in the play characters are critiqued for titling their books Gloria I mean that's fascinating to me it's so so interesting Right, right. The claiming of names, the 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 posthumous nature of names in tragedy, and and how they how they can still affect you down the line. This play is just like chock full of that. It's chock full of humor, chock full of just uh, really sharp and witty repartee between. Boy, what what sentence was that? Sharp and witty repartee. The sharp and witty. The tri- <laughs> the, what what were we talking about before this episode, Jackson? The tr- the trunken. The oh yeah, uh, trenchant. The trenchant. Yeah, the to, sharp to, and witty trenchant. But you're right to point out the comedy. I mean, the play is really very funny. It's described by pretty much everybody that that writes reviews and does interviews as this kind of dark comedy where these characters say things that are so witty, so in line, but that have that situate in this kind of painful reality, have these kind of painful undertones. And, And that is what pays off so well in the final moment of the play. The final moment of the play is as perfect an example of dark comedy as anything I've ever seen, which is that Lauren, again, he's a temp for this office. The final scene of the, the final moment of the play is his like 20 something boss. And he's much older than that trying to get his attention and he tries different L starting names over and over. He, he cannot come up with Lauren's name. I mean, after all the commentary about naming, after all the commentary of these sort of disadvantaged workers and the conflicts there and getting to know the people in your office and who <laughs> owns all these stories, after all that, it's this lovely little moment of dark comedy. I would imagine that you chuckle and at the same time you go, oh, yeah, you oh. chuckle and groan and like <laughs> crumple into your seat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If so, so we're, I mean, we're coming to the end of our time uh, on uh, on our on, on the podcast here. Um, but if there are moments like that that you want to have a conversation with someone about, or just tell someone about who's read the play, we'd love to keep talking about this play with you. If you've seen it, read it, acted in it, we'd certainly love to be uh, in conversation with you. And you can have those conversations with us across social media platforms. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter uh, with the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on any of those sites and we'd love to continue this conversation about the play Gloria with you. Absolutely. And if you would, please consider recommending the podcast to friends and family who might uh, like plays, like literature, like theater, any of those things. I think that they'll find the podcast interesting. So send them our way. We're on Podbean. That's where we're hosted. But we're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. If you want a really easy way to connect with us, just like us on Facebook. You'll get the advertisements for the upcoming episodes so you know what we're going to talk about. And then, of course, you will get a link to the new episode every Monday when we are released. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're continuing to clip through the season. Here we are. We're, we're, we're going along. We'll be talking about another play next week. Um, until then, when we get to talk about one of theater's best scripts again, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.